Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Alga, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And today, we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some other titles to view at home. So new in the virtual screening room this week, we have Hope, which was Norway's 2021 Oscar selection, and which is a powerful drama about a couple and their large family dealing with the impact of a cancer diagnosis over the Christmas and New Year holidays. We also have Beast Beast, which is an unconventional Gen Z coming of age drama about three teens whose lives intersect in a small suburban town in the American South. And lastly, we have Bill Trailer Chasing Ghosts, which is a documentary portrait of pioneering American artist Bill Trailer, who was born into slavery in 1853 and went on to become one of America's greatest self-taught artists. This week, we're going to discuss all of the new films premiering in AFI Silver's virtual screening room and also briefly recap some of our most popular titles that opened in previous weeks and are also currently available to screen there. We also have a few special announcements about festivals and events to share with you. And finally, we're going to close with our programmer's picks section, where we discuss some other ideas for films to watch at home. And please check out the episode description if you'd like to scroll ahead to any particular section. You'll find kind of a table of contents and time codes listed there. This is episode 42 of Silver Streams. We began this podcast back in April of 2020, shortly after we had to temporarily close the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launching our virtual cinema program. And we'd like to thank everyone out there who has been listening to the podcast over the course of this past year. It's been fun for us to do and see the listenership grow over time. And we encourage you all to go back and listen to our past episodes that maybe you missed the first time they rolled out uh, episodes like episode 40, where we discussed Michael Mann's 1981 debut feature film, Thief, or episode 38, where we discussed the Coen Brothers' Fargo, which just marked its 25th anniversary recently, or episode 36, where we discussed Martin Scorsese's classic Taxi Driver. Thank you all for listening to Silver Streams, and also a big thank you to everyone out there who has been screening films at home from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended physical closure. Thank you all for supporting the Silver during these challenging times. And a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com silver. And if you ever have any feedback or questions, you can always email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com silver in our Friday e-blast and across our social media channels. And we are also in all the places where you usually find your podcasts. And if you aren't already a subscriber to the podcast, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your app of choice. And while you're there, make sure to give us a rating, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or whatever it is you use to listen to the show. That helps us get in front of more people who may not know us. 
And of course, just spreading the word organically through your networks, family and friends, social media, all that good stuff helps the show as well. And as always, a big, big thank you to everyone who streamed something from the virtual screening room or the New African Film Festival over the past week and weekend. Um, our top film, or actually our top films yet again this week, were the 2021 Oscar-nominated short films, uh, which we're presenting in the run-up to the Academy Awards on April 25th, which is coming right up. We have a program for each of the three categories, animated, live action, documentary, and all three have been popular, I'm pleased to report. And if you want to do a bit of a deep dive on all three programs before you check them out, then you can head back to episode 40, where we reviewed all three categories and made some perhaps controversial Oscar predictions. And then speaking of Oscar nominees, uh, we have a number of others in the virtual screening room still going strong, including Tunisia's 2021 Oscar selection and now Oscar nominee for Best International Feature, The Man Who Sold His Skin, from director Kautha Benhania, uh, which I talked about a bit last week. And this is kind of an art world thriller about a Syrian refugee who sells his back as a canvas for a famous contemporary artist in exchange for a visa to Europe. We also have The Father, which is the directorial debut of playwright Florian Zeller, and which is nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, and Best Supporting Actress for Olivia Colman. We also have Quo Vadis Aida, the 2021 selection from Bosnia and Herzegovina for the uh, Academy Awards, and now nominee for Best International Feature Film. We have Collective, an investigative documentary from Romania, which is nominated both for International Feature and for Best Documentary. And of course, the OG of Oscar nominees in the virtual screening room, Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which we've had around for quite a while and which is nominated for Best International Feature and Best Director, and which, as I say every week, will be taking at least one of those prizes home on April 25th. And it may not be taking home any prizes from the Oscars, but Slalom opened really well this past weekend in our virtual screening room, cracking the top five. And hopefully it continues that trend in the weeks to come. This is a very strong feature debut from Charlene Favier, starring Noé Abita and Dardenne regular Jeremy Renier. And as I mentioned on last week's show, I think it tackles issues of sexual abuse and power dynamics in the sports world in a timely and nuanced way. And you'll want to jump on board early for uh, the Favier train as well. I'm sure she'll have many great projects in her future. And speaking of directors with great things ahead of them, Shiva Baby, Emma Seligman's directorial debut starring Rachel Sennett as a 20-something slacker who can't stop lying to her parents and everyone around her as she's dragged to a Shiva for someone she hardly knows, continues to be among our top performers and deservedly so. My Darling Supermarket has rallied this week to join our top performers in the virtual screening room. It's a charming and funny documentary portrait of the quirky employees of a colorful supermercado in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Also still going strong in our virtual screening room is Ku 53. This is a deep dive into the archival evidence of the UK's involvement in the CIA-led 1953 coup in Iran that deposed the democratically elected leader for the Shah. It also features actor Ray Fiennes in a dramatic recreation of a lost interview with a British MI6 officer involved in the coup. 
Also, the documentary, The Mali Cuba Connection, which follows French music producer Richard Minier as he attempts to track down and hopefully reunite Las Maravillas de Mali, an iconic Afro Cuban ensemble from the 1960s. And rounding out our top 10 or so, MC Escher, Journey to Infinity. This is a documentary about the life and career of the world-famous Dutch graphic artist M.C. Escher, the man whose mind-bending, perspective-changing work has adorned college dorm rooms for decades, even across generations. And if you're listening to the podcast The Day It Drops on Friday, April 16th, then we only have one weekend left of this year's all-virtual New African Film Festival, which is set to run through Sunday, April 18th. Uh, This is the 17th edition of the festival. We open back on April 1st with um, Sutu filmmaker Lamahang Jeremiah Masese's multi-award winning drama. This is not a burial, it's a resurrection, followed by a Q&A with Masese. And all 33 films in the festival, including this one, will remain available through Sunday, April 18th. So don't worry if you're late getting started. I think you could get through at least half the lineup in the next few days if you're up for a challenge. And we're closing the festival with a new 2K restoration of Tunisian director Farid Bougadia's landmark survey of African cinema, Camera Dafrik, which was originally selected to close the 2020 edition of the festival, which unfortunately we weren't able to do. So we're really happy to have it here now as our closing pick and finally be able to show it virtually along with a Q&A with filmmaker Farid Bougadia. And that one again is available now through April 18th. And we also have have an audience award this year and that's going to be announced on April 18th um, earlier in the day so uh, watch out for that announcement and maybe if you missed everything else you can at least catch the audience award winner on Sunday. And it's your last week to catch the slow burn thriller Madre as part of our Spanish Cinema Now Plus series co-presented with Spain Arts and Culture. That film will end its run in the virtual screening room on April 22nd but coming up the day after is Fire Will Come opening April 23rd. The multi-award winning third feature from Oliver Lacks was one of my favorites of last year. It's a hypnotically gorgeous drama that follows an arsonist in rural Galicia, fresh out of prison, who moves in with his mother. Then we end the series with A Thief's Daughter, which will be available from May 14th through the 30th. The directorial debut from writer-director Belen Funes. It's a working class drama in the mold of Ken Loach and the Dardenne brothers, with a star-making performance from its young lead, Greta Fernandez, who co-stars with her real-life father, Eduard Fernandez, playing her fictional father in the film, just fresh out of prison, as he tries to warm his way back into her life and the life of her half-brother that are already in very precarious places. Spanish Cinema Now Plus is a lead-up series to the full Spanish Cinema Now Festival, which is coming in June. So be on the lookout for that lineup in the coming months. We also have a newly announced online silent film live stream to tell you about, and that is Camille from 1921. This will be a live stream screening and performance from our friend Ben Modell, uh, providing the musical accompaniment for the film. And this program is co-presented with the Art Deco Society of Washington. It will take place on Thursday, April 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And like other online silent events that we've done in the past, this will be a pay what you like event. So technically, it 
could be a free event if that's what you'd like it to be. But we are asking for everyone to pay what you're comfortable with um, and help support the silver uh, as we continue to present these kind of events online and look forward to uh, in the not too distant future being able to reopen the theater. And we'll have more information about that in the relatively uh, near term here. Uh, so once again, it's Thursday, April 29 at 8 p.m. Eastern time. All of the information appears on our website, afi.com slash silver, as far as how to go ahead and pre-register and uh, process the pay what you like component of, of the event. And this version of Alexandra Dumas's famous novel and play stars producer and actress Ala Natsumova. Uh, Natsumova, perhaps best known for her film Salome, which we've presented at the Silver in the past. And here she is opposite a young star in the making, Rudolf Valentino. Also, this version of Camille transposes the novel's 1840s setting over to a contemporary 1920s Paris setting. And the fabulous costumes and sets seen here in the movie were designed by Natasha Rambova, who would go on to marry Rudolph Valentino just a few years later. And the look on display here in Camille is aggressively Art Nouveau, Art Deco. Uh, thus, the co-presentation with our friends at Art Deco Society Washington is very much on point. And in, in terms of the timing of this presentation, April is Art Deco month. Uh, so take a look at the Art Deco Society Washington's website, which is adsw.org, where you can read about other events that they are presenting this month throughout the month of April in the lead up to our event together on April 29th, including an online edition of their big annual modernism show coming up April 23rd through 25th. And you can also check out the ICADS website. That's the International Coalition of Art Deco Societies, where you'll find a listing of all of the events celebrating Art Deco Month that are taking place worldwide. And that's ICADS, I-C-A-D-S, dot info. And we've also just announced an online screening series called LEM 2021, I've Seen the Future, which is a Stanislav LEM centennial screening series. And the series is going to kick off on April 30th and run through June the 10th. This year, 2021 marks the centennial of Polish writer Stanislaw Lem's birth. Lem's famous for his many sci-fi novels, including the one on which Andrzej Tarkovsky's famous 1972 film Solaris is based on. AFI Silver Theater will be co-presenting this online film series in collaboration with the Polish Film Festival Miami and the Embassy of Poland in Washington, D.C. And you can check out our website, afi.com slash silver, to find the full details on this excellent series. We'll be presenting both versions of Solaris, so both Tarkovsky's and Steven Soderbergh's 2002 version starring George Clooney and Viola Davis, as well as the recently restored Ikari XB1, which is going to be making a return engagement to a virtual screening room in case you missed it when we presented it earlier this year, as well as a few rarities. So again, you can find all of the details on the LEM series on our website, afi.com silver. So that's what's coming up for special events and series and festivals. 
Here are the new films we have debuting in the virtual screening room this week. So first up, we have Hope, which is coming to us from Kim Stem. And Hope is the second feature of Norwegian writer and director Maria Sodal, following her 2010 debut Limbo. And it was, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Norway's 2021 Oscar submission. Uh, it was shortlisted, but it was not nominated. Although having now seen it, I think it would have been perfectly at home uh, alongside this year's excellent nominee. So I'm a bit disappointed that it didn't make the cut. Again, it's a very crowded, very strong field this year in the in the best international feature category. Um, I'll also mention that Maria Sodal is married to Norwegian director Hans Petter Moland, who directed last year's Norwegian Oscar submission, Out Stealing Horses, which, like Hope, stars Swedish actor Stellan Skarsgård, and also like Hope, uh, we featured in our virtual screening room. So Hope is a very personal, semi-autobiographical story based on director Maria Sodal's own experience battling brain cancer and miraculously surviving to tell the tale. The film is set over the course of a very condensed period of time between Christmas and New Year, as we follow uh, Anya, played by excellent Norwegian actress, Andrea Breinhovig, who won the Best Actress Award at Norway's Amanda Awards last year, kind of like the Norwegian Oscars, and her partner of 10 plus years, Thomas, played by Swedish superstar, Stellan Skarsgård. The pair are parents of six biological children and stepchildren, and we follow them day to day over the course of one kind of excruciating week as they try to deal with the bombshell news that Anya has developed brain cancer and potentially only has around three months to live. And the real kicker is that this is happening during the holiday season uh, with many of the doctors and experts that Anya would like to consult not immediately available. And so the couple have to play this agonizing waiting game to find out the true prognosis, determine if surgery is an option and decide how and when to break this news to their six children and other family members. And of course, all of this on top of the regular stresses that come with the holiday season and with Anya desperately trying to maintain a sense of normalcy for her kids while enduring this incredible emotional and physical turmoil that she feels she can't really allow anyone else to know about besides Tomas. And so really at the heart of this story is the relationship between Anya and Tomas and the ways in which it's both tested and strengthened by the devastating news that they receive. And it's clear from the film's outset that the two are very independent of one another. They both have creative jobs in parallel worlds. They're both independently successful, which is all great and very healthy for a relationship, of course. But you do get the sense here that the pair have somewhat drifted apart and maybe neglected one another in various ways. So when Anya gets this terminal cancer diagnosis, it kind of strips their lives bare, removing all of the outward signifiers of success and happiness to expose what's kind of become a neglected relationship and one that's perhaps not as based on mutual support and respect as it has appeared to be. And it's through this experience, which they have no choice but to share and confront together, that Annie and Thomas begin to kind of reconnect and engage in this joint struggle to deal with this unexpected crisis. In a way, kind of finally learning to love and appreciate one another for the first time, even after a long life spent together. So yes, this is an intense drama about a family coping with a cancer diagnosis, but it's also in a way a love story in a romance. And that's part of where the hope of the film's title comes from. 
And in fact, this isn't necessarily a tragic story at all. There's immense warmth and happiness in places, particularly in the scenes uh, of the family's day-to-day life. And because we as an audience are waiting along with the central characters to learn the true implications of this diagnosis, we like them can't help but hope that something miraculous will happen. And as one of the doctors advising Anya on how to speak to her children about this diagnosis says, you should always give them 10% more hope than you have for yourself. And that's what we get as an audience from Maria Sotodal. And I mentioned how as an audience, we're completely there with these characters as they await news on Anya's condition. And this aspect of the film also gives it kind of an edge of your seat feel. So that in addition to being a serious drama and a midlife romance, Hope is also thriller-like in its approach as we follow Anya and Thomas from specialist to specialist over the course of the film as they find out new bits of information and new details and have to make tough decisions about what to do with these things along the way. And I also want to mention the excellent production design and cinematography here because it works really well, particularly in the contrast between the warm, cozy, hige, I'm going to use that word, interiors of Anya and Thomas's domestic realm and the family home, and then the light, bright, cold clinical settings, uh, which we see them in as they try to navigate various hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices in pursuit of answers. The film was shot by Chilean cinematographer Manuel Alberto Claro, who also shot Maria Sodal's first film, Limbo, and is also known for his work with Danish director Lars von Trier. And this one's for you, Ben. He also shot Amat Ascalante's The Untamed, a favorite, I know. And he really does an amazing job of capturing these warm, low-lit interiors of the couple's family home. And that kind of gives the film a holiday vibe in a way. It's kind of like the family home in It's a Wonderful Life, warm and inviting and full of love despite everything. So on top of everything else, this is also kind of a Christmas movie, Uh, not only because it's literally set over the Christmas period, but because it deals with some of the themes that we've come to expect in good holiday movies. It's about reconnecting, revisiting, and maybe reinterpreting the past. It's about complex families and all their dysfunction. And in the end, it is about hope, even in the face of a tragedy. So there you have it. Hope is a grown-up, semi-autobiographical family drama, romance, thriller, Christmas movie. Uh, What more could you possibly want? Well, Abby, it was only a few months ago that we had uh, one of Stellan Skarsgård's most recent films, Outstealing Horses, uh, available in our virtual screening room. And it actually was kind of a a medium, maybe medium to big sized hit for us among our virtual screening room offerings. It did really well. So uh, definitely there's a fan base there and he's quite good at picking his projects and maintaining uh, the quality level, I think. So this one sounds right uh, along similar lines to um, what Outstealing Horses was uh, in terms of being a quality drama and hoping for hoping to see a good turnout for this one as well. Yeah, I certainly hope so. And, you know, as I mentioned, Outstealing Horses by Maria Sadal's husband, Hans Petter Moland. So it's all connected. And of course, Stellan Skarsgård, as always, is fantastic here. But the film really does belong to Andrea Breinhovic, who is literally in every single frame of the film and does an absolutely fantastic job taking on this, you know, what would be really, really tough material, uh, especially knowing that it was is based on something that actually occurred in the life of, of uh, Maria Sadal, who was directing her. So great job uh, by the cast all around. 
And although I assume the film doesn't have an untamed vibe, I like the shout out of the cinematographer there. Uh, it does sound like this is uh, ripe for a U.S. remake of some kind. I don't know if that's in the works. Well, then, it's funny you should mention that because actually it was just announced not that long ago that Nicole Kidman is going to be remaking this film as a TV series for Amazon Studios. She's going to star in it and executive produce it. Um, I'm not sure when it's slated to start shooting or to come out, but yeah, I think um, I think it's hopefully going to be great because obviously it's Nicole Kidman and I liked what she did recently in The, the Undoing um, as part of a, a couple uh, with Hugh Grant. And so, uh, yeah, I think I think this is great material for her and she has obviously a great starting point with this film. Yeah, got to catch up with the movie before the series. Well, definitely. You have to see the original first. Okay, so that is Hope coming to us from Kim Stim. And up next in the virtual screening room is the feature directorial debut of Danny Madden, Beast Beast, which premiered at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. The film was executive produced by Jim Cummings, who longtime listeners may recall me mentioning in one of our early programmers picks for his feature debut, Thunder Road. And like Thunder Road, Beast Beast started out as a South by Southwest award-winning short by the name of Krista that was fleshed out into a feature. Director Danny Madden wanted to explore more of the character in that film, Krista, in that short, uh, while incorporating some issues of gun violence that he was seeing in the news. In Beast Beast, we follow Krista, a popular theater kid in the small southern town of Peachtree City, Georgia who was taken by new student Nito, a skateboarder with a pretty active Instagram account. We also follow a third student, Adam, a YouTuber with a specialization in all things firearms. And all three of these students are dealing with their various problems in their home lives, but they find escapes in their personal passions. Krista can't seem to find common ground with her parents, but excels in her school's theater group and is always bursting with energy. Nito lives with his deadbeat dad who kicks him out of the house occasionally to have women over. So he ends up being kind of a loner in a new town, but is quickly brought into the fold after an eventful house party and a budding relationship with Krista, who is initially intrigued by him when they run into each other at their lockers, but really takes an interest after seeing his pretty impressive skateboard videos. Adam is more of a true outsider and is laser focused on building a career out of his YouTube videos. He's also adamant about gun safety and never operating a firearm in an emotional state. But he's quick to remind everyone that he's not just talking about hunting. He believes in guns being a valid and even a necessary form of protection. The three stories of these Gen Z kids collide with moments of joy and tragedy and a kinetic camera that matches the energy of all the characters. Characters that are three-dimensional and with their own humanity. Madden was explicit in his desire to make sure that all the kids felt real, never like caricatures. He wanted to capture a sense of intimacy, so he shot in his hometown using his own neighborhood, his own school, his home, and even his brother, uh, Will, Will Madden, who plays Adam here. As a result, there's not an ounce of insincerity on screen, and, and I can see how this earnestness might turn off some viewers, but for me, it felt authentic to the story and to the characters here, and of course, to the high school experience. 
And that vulnerability mixed with the inventive and propulsive camera work grounded what could have easily been a run-of-the-mill after-school special. The actors are also key to the film's success. Shirley Chen is reprising her role as Krista from the award-winning short and does a really good job carrying the film as the ostensible lead. And of course, having to play an actor on screen, which is always tough to pull off, acting while acting. Jose Angeles plays Nito and was previously more of a stuntman, playing Steven Yun's stunt double in Sorry to Bother You, which tracks considering he was the 2017 world champion sign spinner. He also specializes in parkour skateboarding, which we get to see plenty of here. And Will Madden, as I mentioned, brother of Danny, served as almost a second writer on the film, doing tons of research for his character Adam and diving headfirst into gun culture and YouTubers. He's also by far the most experienced of the cast, with nearly 30 projects over a decade. Beast Beast is a perfect addition to the crop of indie films coming out of the South that's really been led by Jim Cummings in the past few years. So if you like the sensibility of films like Thunder Road, or you just want to give a chance to a promising young voice, I suggest checking out this new film in our virtual screening room this week. Well, Ben, you know I love a good high school movie like the one we're going to talk about uh, later on on the podcast as our pick. And actually, Gen Z has had some really good ones so far. We've got Booksmart and Edge of 17 and 8th grade. And so it sounds like this one is another great entry into the Gen Z teen movie canon. Definitely another good entry into the Gen Z movie canon. I like all those movies you mentioned, so I hadn't really thought of it in terms of that existing. But now that you mentioned all of them together, yeah, there's there's a little canon forming and this is a, a, a nice one to add to it, a much more indie, low-budget uh, film and maybe a little bit more dramatic than, than those films that, that you mentioned, but uh, a good one nonetheless, and hopefully we'll see some more interesting stories coming out of the Gen Z. I'm sure we will. All right, so that is Beast Beast coming to us from our friends at Vanishing Angle. So the final film we have opening in our virtual screening room this week is the documentary Bill Trailer Chasing Ghosts. And this is a documentary by filmmaker Jeffrey Wolf about the African-American self-taught folk artist Bill Trailer, who was born into slavery in pre-Civil War Lowndes County, Alabama in 1853. Trailer worked as a farmer through most of his long life. He died at age 96 in 1949, and it was only in his later years, his 80s even, that he began drawing and painting. Trailer exhibited his work in his 90s, which was the 1940s, but it wasn't until many years later in the 1970s and 80s that Trailer's work reached a wider audience and he became recognized for his visionary drawing and painting. And Trailer's work was recognized for the way that it combined folk art tradition with modern and occasionally abstract approaches all done with a singular, very personal, and one-of-a-kind style. Usually working with repurposed cardboard and poster board, Trailer's art featured iconic imagery used repeatedly across works and in various combinations. These included depictions of dogs, horses, and other livestock, top-hatted men, local Montgomery, Alabama landmarks, and other mostly local plants and animals, which all seem to carry symbolic meaning as represented here by Trailer. His earliest works might focus on single subjects, again, done in somewhat of an iconic style. 
His later works combined a number of these figures in often tumultuous compositions, uh, often with a real sense of dynamism and movement to them, as well as interesting hybrid plant-animal figures. Depictions of alcohol bottles and jugs appear frequently, as do quarrelsome men and women. Trailer was encouraged in his work and supported early on by a local Montgomery artist named Charles Shannon, who provided Trailer with art supplies and helped organize his first local exhibition in 1940. And Shannon would be instrumental in getting Trailer's work exhibited many years later in New York City in the late 1970s for a solo gallery show. And things really took off from there with some purchases donations to the Montgomery Museum of Fine Art, and inclusion of some 36 trailer pieces in a landmark 1982 show at Washington, D.C.'s Corcoran Art Museum, which was called Black Folk Art in America, 1930 to 1980. And many exhibitions at various museums have followed since, including most recently in 2019, the retrospective Between Worlds, the Art of Bill Trailer at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. There are a number of interviewees here in the documentary who helped to tell the Bill Trailer story, as well as a steady stream of images from Trailer's amazing works. Uh, and among the very knowledgeable people interviewed that we hear from here are Richard J. Powell, who is a professor of art and art history at Duke University, Howard Robinson, who's a history professor and archivist at Alabama State, writer and musician Greg Tate, who's also a very good interviewee in the documentary Summer of Soul which recently won multiple awards at the Sundance Film Festival. Leslie Umberger, who is a museum curator for the Smithsonian at the American Art Museum, and also who curated the 2019 Bill Trailer Retro there. And Roberta Smith, the co-chief art critic at the New York Times. We also hear from Russell G. Jones and Sharon Washington, two veteran actors who act as storytellers here relating the Bill Trailer story from on stage, also artist Radcliffe Bailey, and several of Bill Trailer's descendants. The documentary also features some really beautiful evocative photographs of people both in rural or farm settings and in the city from the early 1900s through to the 1940s uh, in various places in Alabama. I noticed that various museums and archives were credited uh, for the photographs came from, but also uh, by name, photographers Horace Perry and Mary Morgan Keep. And some of these stills are used just for establishing time and place, but some are, in fact, of Bill Trailer in his customary spot on a downtown Montgomery street outside a small grocery where he would draw on a kind of lap desk. And these photos look like they were taken right around 1940. I learned quite a bit about Bill Trailer's life and art here and the place and time where he spent his long life stretching from before the Civil War to just after World War II. And all of this helped me uh, to better appreciate his wonderful art. So for anyone who enjoys art history and art documentaries, something that we've featured quite a few of recently, the past several months, this film is a must-see. So please do check out Bill Trailer Chasing Ghosts. Well, Todd, I got to see the Bill Trailer retrospective at the Smithsonian uh, in 2019, I think. And that was surprisingly the first ever retrospective of his work. And it was really, really incredible and very extensive and especially eye opening for me since, yes, even as an art history graduate, I wasn't really aware of Bill Trailer and his importance in the history of uh, modern 
art in America. Um, so hopefully uh, that exhibition and this documentary will kind of set the record straight and get uh, get trailer on more art history syllabi. Uh, yeah, agreed. And I and I think uh, I think the documentary will will help uh, people to understand the the full context of of his life and and where it took place and the and the times in which he lived and and how that uh, informs the art that he made. Um, and then as, as far as what you said about the, the timing of finding out, I, I think people are in the process uh, of finding out about Bill Trailer. Uh, and that's not uncommon in, in our history, of course, that uh, the art is, is seen by more people, appreciated by more people, often many decades after the, the artist uh, is no longer with us. And um, I think the combination of, of that really big retro a couple of years ago and, and this documentary, it really feels like kind of a moment of more people finding out about Bill Trailer and, and, and appreciating his art. Um, so yeah, hopefully that will include some people who view the documentary with us uh, starting this week. Yeah, and after you uh, check out this documentary, if you haven't already, of course, uh, as Todd mentioned, we have a few other uh, art history documentaries in the virtual screening room, including one on David Wojnarowicz, another one, Gustav Stickley and MC Escher. So a lot to choose from in the virtual screening room in the way of art history documentaries right now. Okay, so once again, the documentary is Bill Trailer Chasing Ghosts, and that is coming to us from our friends at Kino Lorber. Okay, so that's what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. In addition to discussing the films that we have available as virtual cinema, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home this being our programmer's picks section. And today we're going to discuss a film that was released 15 years ago in 2006 that imported film noir tropes and a kind of underworld argo into a teen movie with a high school setting. It was a quirky combination that yielded a distinctive and unique film, although one that could perhaps be seen as part of a stealth trend for doing genre mashups at the time. And it was a debut feature film that launched its young writer-director on a significant, still-evolving filmmaking career. If you want words, we're talking about Brick, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, written and directed by Ryan Johnson. Brendan? Emily? I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good? No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just wanna know if she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up. So Brick was awarded the special jury prize for originality of vision at Sundance in 2005, more than a year before the film would actually hit theaters in April 2006. And I think that description, originality of vision, really hits the nail on the head for this film. As Todd mentioned, hard-boiled neo-noir, complete with femme fatales, gangsters, a lonely anti-hero hell-bent on getting answers. But it's all set in a sunny Southern California high school among its teenage students, all of whom speak in this stylized 1940s updated for the 2000s underworld jargon drawn from classic film noir with a dash of invented Southern California slang. And so Brit completely flips 
audience expectations about both of the genres it was going for, the film noir and the high school movie. And in doing so, create something really unique, not a parody of either genre, not an homage to either genre, not really a deconstruction of either genre, but instead a straight up bona fide 40s style detective story transposed to a mid 2000s Southern California high school. And somehow, even though it definitely shouldn't, it does actually work. It's kind of like clueless, updated for the noughties with hard drugs, murder and gang fare instead of matchmaking. And actually, I do think the films bear some comparison because in Brick, just as in Clueless, the plot's construction allowed director Ryan Johnson to build this world around a high school and its cliques and its hierarchies, all kind of a microcosm for the real world. And we get this as our anti-hero, Brendan Fry, embarks on an investigation that takes him on a tour of the school's different social circles, the jocks, the sinners, the theater kids, the popular rich girls, you know, all standards for high school movies. And then Johnson escalates the situation into a violent gang war centering on a missing girl and a mysterious brick of drugs. So this would be an ambitious and risky project for any director. And so it is worth remembering that as Todd mentioned, this was director Ryan Johnson's debut feature. He wrote the script at age 23, straight out of film school and barely himself out of high school. Made the film at age 30 for a budget of $450,000, which he scraped together from family and friends. And then he proceeded to embark on a career that would include directing a Star Wars movie and most recently inking a $450 million deal with Netflix for two sequels to his most recent film, Knives Out. More on that later. Um, so where on earth did Brick come from and what gave Johnson the inspiration, some may say arrogance in some ways, to take on such an ambitious project as a debut feature? Well, Johnson has said that he was initially inspired by the novels of mystery writer Dashiell Hammett and the film adaptations of his work, which include, among others, The Maltese Falcon, both versions, and The Thin Man. And Johnson was actually prompted to read Dashiell Hammett by an interview with the Coen brothers about their 1990 neo-noir Miller's Crossing, in which they cited Hammett as a major influence for that film. So like many stories in independent film, American independent film, it all kind of started with the Coen brothers. And Johnson subsequently attempted to read everything Dashiell Hammett had written. He then wrote his script for Brick, uh, fresh out of film school, first as a novella uh, in the style of Hammett and then into a full script, which he worked on for seven years to get made. Um, the high school setting of the film, I think, in part was down to budget or lack thereof. You know, Johnson wasn't going to have a big production design budget to create the look of a classic period film noir or to hire older, more established actors. And I think also in part because he saw this trend of high school set movies of the era and smartly, I think, wanted to capitalize on that while creating something new and completely unique. And I do also think that high school is kind of a perfect setting for a story like this in that it allowed Johnson to kind of create this fantasy world, which is what most high school movies do, in this case, more a fantasy underworld and then really let his imagination run wild. And what we get with Brick is this kind of heightened, almost surreal reality. And as Johnson said about this in one interview, Brick is to high school as Gotham City is to New York City. It isn't the way high school was, but maybe it's a little bit closer to the way high school felt. And that's so true. A high school setting is kind of the ideal place for this heightened drama of, of film noir to play out. You know, it's a time when everything feels monumentally important, everything is ultra dramatic, everything's a life or death situation. And Brick really cleverly dramatizes that 
emotional memory of, of high school with humor, certainly, without really mocking or belittling any of those feelings. So once Johnson had determined this particular setting, this high school setting for his film noir, he then had to find a way to signal this genre within the context of high school. And of course, for budget reasons, that wasn't going to be achieved with elaborate sets and production design and costume design. The film was going to be shot on location in San Clemente High School, which was Johnson's high school, by the way, and in the surrounding kind of suburban area. It was going to be sunny most of the time. Uh, and for the most part, it was going to be shot during the daytime with characters wearing clothing typical of early 2000s high schoolers. So basically, it was going to lack many of the visual cues associated with film noir. So instead, Johnson decided to rely heavily on the film's dialogue to signal the genre with this mix of period jargon and detective slang. And as I mentioned, Johnson's own creative additions to SoCal slang coming from the mouths of what would otherwise be just pretty standard 2000s teens. And apparently while the film itself was shot in just 20 days, Johnson and the cast had to put in about three months of prep and rehearsal work prior to this in order to really nail this dialogue, uh, which is key to the film and which I know is not for everyone, um, but personally, I think it absolutely works. And so here's Brendan, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, questioning stoner burnout Dode, played by Noah Sagan, about the whereabouts of their mutual ex-girlfriend, Emily, the woman at the heart of the film's mystery. Kara told me you know where Em's at. Uh-huh. And why are you looking for M? She asked for my help. Uh-huh. Well, listen, man, I got plenty on my plate without dealing with some jilted ex. It's not about that. Well, whatever it's about, act smarter than you look and drop it. Where's she at? You better get while it's good. Heal it now, dig. Don't at me if you want hash that. I got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. And then while the film doesn't have flashy production design or, you know, the typically exaggerated light and shadow associated with film noir, that's not to say it doesn't look great. Uh, it was all shot in 35 millimeter. It makes use of lots of innovative camera tricks. And there's definitely a certain visual flair that elevates it above what you might consider a typical high school drama. And Johnson and his cinematographer, uh, Steve Yedlin, have cited, among others, uh, Sergio Leone's Spaghetti Westerns, Roman Polanski's 1974 neo-noir Chinatown, and the wide open spaces that we see in these films, as opposed to the tighter, more urban spaces we might see in classic film noir, as providing many of Brick's visual cues. Brick, of course, also owes a debt to some of the quirky, dark teen genre films of the past as well as being a part of a kind of renaissance of those films that started in the mid-90s and went into the early 2000s. River's Edge and Heather's come to mind as particularly stylized teen crime films of the 80s that couldn't have been far from Johnson's mind when deciding to set the film in a high school. River's Edge from 1986 stars, of course, Crispin Glover, Keanu Reeves, Ioni Sky, Josh Richman, Roxana Zal, and Daniel Roebuck as a group of high school students who have to deal with the aftermath of murder when it's revealed that Roebuck's character killed his girlfriend. Heathers came a bit later in the 80s and 89 and stars Winona Ryder as Veronica, the disillusioned member of the popular rich girl clique, uh, along with three girls named Heather 
who falls for the murderous Christian Slater as JD. Heathers can get pretty dark, but it's always firmly a dark comedy with the murders being played off as uh, elaborate suicides. And both these films won the best feature at the Independent Spirit Awards in their respective years and paved the way for the films of the mid-90s to early 2000s that took on the whole kids and adult situation film or the teen genre mashup, uh, but maybe with a tad more seriousness, even if they can veer into the campy area. 1998 was uh, the year of the faculty, apt people, and wild things. Uh, kind of a banner year for these movies. The Faculty is Robert Rodriguez's fourth film and stars Elijah Wood, Josh Hartnett, Clea Duvall, Jordana Brewster, and even Usher for good measure, if you want to talk about 90s stars. It's firmly in the genre world, specifically sci-fi, with an alien invasion taking over their high school. Apt Pupil is a crime thriller based on a Stephen King novella in which Brad Renfro, as a 16-year-old neighbor to Ian McKellen, blackmails him, suspecting that McKellen is a Nazi war criminal. And then there's Wild Things, starring Nev Campbell, Denise Richards, and Matt Dillon, also Kevin Bacon in that movie, uh, where the neo-noir high school mashup starts to appear. Although the film is probably remembered as a neo-noir or a detective story, it's definitely more of an erotic thriller. And at the time, and even now, just remember for the salacious content, not necessarily the detective story elements. And speaking of erotic thrillers, in 99, uh, we saw the release of Cruel Intentions, starring Ryan Phillippe and Sarah Michelle Gellar as a pair of vicious step-siblings from an elite Manhattan prep school who make a bet to see who can take the virginity of the new headmaster's daughter, played by Reese Witherspoon. Uh, this is kind of a dangerous liaisons in high school for Y2K. And if we jump ahead into that Y2K, into the new millennium, just a few years to 2002, uh, the year before production began on Brick, uh, you get one of the more critically panned efforts of the genre, the psychological thriller Swim Fan in which a one-night stand with an obsessive fan of a high school swimmer becomes deadly. So leading up to this moment, this moment of brick, there are certainly a lot of dark teen films, things I didn't mention, uh, things in the genre mashup world um, with varying levels of success, but I think none were quite as faithful to their genres, uh, to the forebears that they were pulling from, as we have here in brick. So for all of the unique aspects that, that make Brick stand out as, a, as kind of a one-of-a-kind film, on the one hand, on the other hand, as Ben just recounted, it can be seen as part of a trend that was taking place in the years leading up to this of, of that kind of genre mashup of teen movie combined with another genre, in this case, film noir or neo-noir. And when we say that a film is incorporating noir or neo-noir style, we should pause to define our terms at least a little bit. So to go all the way back to the beginning, film noir is the term coined by French journalist Nino Frank to describe a trend and style exhibited by certain Hollywood films, which he first applied to a handful of films he got to see in 1946, shortly after World War II, when U.S. films could once again be shown in now-liberated France. 
And the films that he was specifically talking about when he coined this phrase were The Maltese Falcon from 1941, Laura, Otto Preminger's Laura from 1944, Murder My Sweet from 1944 as well, and Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray also from 1944. And the fifth of the five films that he reviewed as a batch, The Woman in the Window, directed by Fritz Lang. Again, a film from 1944. So Nino Frank in 1946, catching up on films from a few years back, as as far back as five years ago in the case of The Maltese Falcon, remarked upon this certain trend that he detected in these new films from Hollywood that was surprisingly darker to him than what he typically associated with American films. And and not only that, but dark even by the standards of, of crime films and detective films. So the operative quote from his uh, film review, translated into English, was the gist of it was that he was commenting on these quote-unquote dark films, these film noir no longer have anything in common with the ordinary run of detective movies. So following on from that, the term film noir becomes an imported term into English used to describe this current trend in style beginning in the immediate post-World War II moment through the rest of the 40s, all through the 1950s, where a certain kind of film is being created out of, out of Holly, in Hollywood. Uh, alongside the other genres, those those don't go away. But uh, there's now this this very particular kind of crime film, detective film, that uh, shares a number of qualities. And this is something that everybody can decide what works for them, what what films to apply it to or not apply to, because there's not one way to do it. Again, it's it's a general trend among a certain kind of film that shares a number of themes. And among the ones that seem to most frequently occur and that most people would agree would uh, mark a film noir would be things such as a, a dark romanticism, but very unsentimental, bordering on cynical. Uh, definitely cynical about the ways of the world and society, undercutting any kind of boosterish American dream narrative. Uh, Often the plot involves a descent into criminality. Foster Hirsch, who has written authoritatively on film noir and neo-noir, for him that is very much the quintessence of noir for uh, otherwise law-abiding citizen to, to, for whatever reason, find him or herself uh, falling into into criminality. And often alongside that, psychological or emotional trauma being an ingredient here. Uh, other times it's, uh, it's the, the ancient standby mainstay vices of greed, jealousy, and lust. Uh, and then finally, uh, on the visual side, a visual aesthetic that enhanced this dark vision, often making use of shadowy chiaroscuro. Uh, there are other ingredients to be sure, including uh, the, the debt owed to uh, styles uh, displayed by French cinema of the 30s and, and German expressionism, including the fact that so many emigre filmmakers from those countries were now practicing their craft in the U.S. Uh, but, but very broadly speaking, those are the kind of things that would set out these kind of films. Again, not all crime films are film noir. Not all detective films are film noir. 
But for those that that have some combination of the qualities I was just describing, that's what makes film noir the unique thing that it is. And this initial post-war noir period, the classic noir period, is usually dated from the mid-40s to the very end of the 50s, 1958. You have Orson Welles' Touch of Evil making for a convenient bookend to the original cycle of films. But even if the times had changed, noir never really stopped being a thing. By the early 1960s, films were being made in homage to the original era and style, sometimes very self-consciously so. And thus we have the neo-noir era. And this doesn't just apply to filmmaking. Consider how many comedic parodies on television sitcoms and advertisements that you've seen over the years. It's a recognizable thing, whether or not you've even seen that many 1940s films that would qualify as noir. So having said all that, doing a high school set film with teens in a noir style, as we see here with Brick, was definitely daring. It certainly was daring. And, and as Abby mentioned, it was daring for a debut, especially this being Ryan Johnson's debut feature. Uh, it was also the start of his collaboration with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the star here, uh, who would go on to also star in his third film, Looper, uh, but appears in all of Johnson's other films in a cameo role. Here he plays Brendan, the smooth-talking, hard-boiled detective investigating the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Emily, navigating through a seedy teenage criminal underworld of heroin dealers, enforcers, and femme fatales. And he's always got a good quip or two up his sleeve, especially when picking fights with people he knows he's, he's gonna lose to. All right, you got me. I'm a scout for the Gophers. Been watching your game for a month, but that story right there has clenched it. You got heart, kid. How soon can you be in Minneapolis? Yeah. Cold winters, but they got a great public transit system. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's a thesaurus in the library. Yeah, it's under Y. Good, I'll wait. No, who invited you? To the parking lot? Gee, I guess I invited myself. Maybe you want to go somewhere more private. You? Sure. As a child actor, he's probably best known for A River Runs Through It, where he played the young version of Craig Sheffer, uh, Holy Matrimony with Patricia Arquette, and 1994's Angels in the Outfield. And by his mid to late teens, when he would have been the actual age of his character in Brick, he was a star on the NBC sitcom Third Rock from the Sun where he grew up in front of the camera for over 131 episodes. And although I'd seen Angels in the Outfield as a kid, I think this is where I really got to know him as an actor and where probably most people did too. He was kind of a superstar on that show and the show was really big in the 90s. So by the end of the show's run in 2001, he was itching to shed his babyface persona and start in the gritty Sundance drama Manic alongside Zoe Deschanel and Don Cheadle. His follow-up to that wasn't exactly a departure from his kid persona voicing the team lead of Treasure Planet in 2002, but by 2004, he started in a film that is decidedly not for kids, Greg Araki's Mysterious Skin, where he's the victim of sexual assault, but still playing a child here in that film. Through the mid to late 2000s, he would continue to work in gritty indies, still looking to shed that persona that he'd attained from being a child star. Uh, following up from Mysterious Skin, 
was Brick. And in 2007, he made The Lookout, another neo-noir. Uh, in 2008, he had a pair of war movies with Stop Loss and Miracle at St. Anna, which he starred in for Spike Lee. He followed those up with his second film with Zoe Deschanel, uh, 500 Days of Summer in 2009, and that same year, G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. And by this time, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just a straight-up movie star. Um, but he still managed to fit in indie projects like Hesher in 2010, where he played a foul-mouthed metalhead squatter, and 50-50 in 2011, where he plays a 27-year-old journalist who's battling cancer. And that's the film that begins his working relationship with director Jonathan Levine and actor Seth Rogen. And speaking of starting out working relationships around this time in 2010, uh, he won the leads in Christopher Nolan's Inception and followed that up closely with The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. That same year, he starred in Ryan Johnson's Looper, which I mentioned earlier, with Bruce Willis. And he was also Robert Todd Lincoln in Spielberg's Lincoln. In 2013, the next year, he made his directorial debut with Don John, uh, co-starring Scarlett Johansson and himself in the lead. He also played Philippe Petit in Robert Zemeckis' The Walk in 2015 and worked with Jonathan Levine and Seth Rogen again in The Night Before that same year with Anthony Mackie as the third lead. As of late, the past few years, he's played Edward Snowden in the film Snowden in 2016. He was a pilot in the plane that gets hijacked by terrorists in the film 7500 from 2019. And he was Richard Schultz in the trial of the Chicago 7 from last year. So clearly he's got a long, varied and interesting uh, career as an actor. But besides that, he also has kept busy with his online collaborative media platform, HitRecord, HitRecord.com, that he started back in 2005 and has produced books, shorts, albums, and even had a TV show for a short time. So clearly Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a man of many talents and a very successful career since starring in Brick. Uh, but getting back to the rest of the cast list, um, we can't forget Matt O'Leary, who plays Brain, um, Brendan's friend and sidekick in his investigation, who he bounces ideas off of and gets advice from meeting up at lockers and in the school library. Uh, O'Leary is one of the few actually age-appropriate actors here. Um, a lot of them, you know, were probably in their mid-20s, even early 30s, playing teens, as is tradition with uh, these teen movies, uh, but he was still a teen when the film was shot. Um, and despite having a similar start as Joseph Gordon-Levitt in kids' movies, uh, O'Leary wouldn't see the same level of success, uh, although he was in havoc with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And with a few notable exceptions, Live Free or Die Hard, The Lone Ranger, and Welcome to Marwin, he's kept to more low-budget festival circuit indie films with plenty of super low-budget horror films mixed in as well. So at the centre of the mystery, at the heart of Brick, uh, as Ben mentions, lies Emily, Emily Kostich, uh, Brendan's troubled ex-girlfriend whose plea for help instigates his quest for answers uh, before she promptly disappears and then turns up dead, possibly in connection to a missing brick of heroin being sought by legendary local drug lord, The Pin. Emily is played by Australian-American actress Emily de Ravine, 
who's probably best known to American audiences for her TV work. Uh, she had recurring roles in Roswell between 2000 and 2002, and then Lost between 2004 and 2008. And while she really only has a small part on screen here, it really is Emily around which the whole plot of the film revolves. And in in the noir universe, she kind of represents this innocence lost in a cruel, indifferent world. And solving her murder becomes the last chance at some sort of redemption for our lonely, bitter anti-hero, Brendan. And then another MVP of Brick, in my opinion, is Megan Good as Kara. Uh, another of Brendan's exes, queen bee of the theatre crowd, um, former friend and confidant of Emily, and general insider to all gossip across San Clemente High School's various social circles. And Megan Good absolutely kills it as this stone-cold diva femme fatale who clearly enjoys stirring the proverbial pot for her own amusement, but who is eventually taken down a peg or two by Brendan as he gets closer and closer to the truth. And Good was already an established actress prior to Brick, having broken out as a teen star in Cassie Lemon's Bayou in 1997, followed by roles in a number of films like Biker Boys, Deliver Us from Eva, and The Cookout. And she's continued to have a prolific film and TV career since Brick, uh, most recently appearing in 2019's Shazam and 2020's Monster Hunter. But here she is as Kara being characteristically unhelpful in Brendan's investigation. Hello, Brendan. Kara. Come to see the show? No, I didn't. Black dog. Bloat. Stay. I need words. Well, I'm listening. About Emily Costich. Run and get my purse. Still picking your teeth with freshmen? You were a freshman once. Wait, once, sister. You and M, tie for a bit. Who's she eating with now? Eating with. Eating with lunch? Who? You're a cutie. Brendan. I don't know where she is. I know you do, so why don't you want me to find out? Well, maybe. I'm looking out for you. Oh, I appreciate that. Brendan. If you're ever looking to get back into things, I could use you. Also in the young cast is Nora Zahetner as Laura. Laura is a, a member of Pin's crew who may be something of an ally to Brendan, or she may in fact embody the noir trope of the femme fatale. You'll just have to watch the film to find out for yourself. And Zahetner later had roles on television's Heroes, Grey's Anatomy, and can now be seen on the Disney Plus series, The Right Stuff. Also, Brian J. White as the loudmouthed jock Brad Bramish. And White, perhaps, has been the busiest actor from the ensemble cast, outside of lead Joseph Gordon-Levitt, at least, with roles in feature films The Family Stone, The Game Plan, Stomp the Yard, I Can Do Bad All By Myself, Good Deeds, those last two both for Tyler Perry, and The Cabin in the Woods. And then on television, White has been a regular cast member on series Men of a Certain Age, Beauty and the Beast, and Ambitions. He's also the eldest son of NBA Hall of Famer and Boston Celtics great Jojo White. And then there's Noah Sagan as Dode who gets a particularly fun introduction, uh, which we heard earlier in the show. 
also gets a pretty dramatic ending in the film. Um, the low-level junkie who brokers meetups throughout the film and eventually gets in over his head uh, was Noah Sagan's big screen debut. And he would continue to work with Ryan Johnson on all of his future directing projects and even follow him over to TV, where he appeared in what might be the series high of Breaking Bad, the episode Ozymandias from season five, uh, almost near the end of the series run for that. But he's also worked on other projects steadily since Brick, projects outside of the Ryan Johnson sphere, mostly low budget action and horror films. But he's really best with Johnson, I think, at least on screen. Um, he's also really good in a recurring role as various different characters from Hollywood history on Karina Longworth's brilliant podcast. You must remember this. Well, if Dode is kind of the initial red herring villain of, of Brick, Brendan's true nemesis uh, in the case, at least until the film's final twist, is the local drug kinpin called The Pin, uh, a mysterious overlord of the high school underworld. And we hear from the brain in one exchange with Brendan before The Pin's identity is really known to them that The Pin is rumored to be really old, like 26 or something, which hilariously is around the age of most of Brick's cast at the time. Um, but it turns out that the pin is not actually that different from everyone else in high school. He's just living with his mom and running the local drug market from a lair in her basement surrounded by hired thugs, uh, which is made kind of all the more amusing and incongruous by the fact that the pin here is played by Lucas Haas, who was not even a really old 26 at the time, but in fact closer to an ancient 30. Uh, but Haas does a brilliant job with this character, making him both menacing, dressed head to toe in black with a cape and a cane to match, but also kind of pathetic and vulnerable at the same time. And he also gives us one of the film's greatest scenes as Brendan and the pin sit down to parlay at the breakfast table while the pin's mum hovers around offering them cereal and juice and cookies. And Haas, like Megan Good, had already established his career prior to Brick, having broken out as an eight-year-old uh, opposite Harrison Ford in 1985's Witness, uh, followed by a string of roles in the 90s and 2000s uh, leading up to Brick. And then following Brick, he's continued to work prolifically uh, in film and TV, with more recent credits including Christopher Nolan's Inception, um, Alejandro Ilu's The Revenant, uh, Damien Chazelle's First Man, and one of my favorites, Steve McQueen's Widows. And then paired with the pin as his kind of right-hand man and lead hired muscle uh, is Noah Fleiss as Tug, uh, another of Emily's ex-boyfriends and a volatile hothead who ultimately gets into a gang war with the pin when the two come to blows after his role in Emily's murder is revealed. And again, like much of the cast in uh, Noah Fleiss got his start as a child actor, in this case, uh, in 1993 with Josh and Sam. And he has continued working in film and TV since, maybe not at the level uh, of someone like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but I think that Brick probably still remains his best known and most memorable role. And rounding out the cast here, we have Richard Roundtree as Assistant Vice Principal Truman. Richard Roundtree will always be known for playing private detective John Shaft in the exploitation classic Shaft from 1971, which also counts as a neo-noir of sorts. It's always fun to see him turn up in a role, and he's good here as the Assistant Vice Principal, 
who has a very cop-perp-like relationship with young Brendan. As was mentioned earlier, Brick premiered at the 2005 edition of the Sundance Film Festival, where it won a special jury prize for originality of vision. The film was then acquired by Focus Features, who released it in March of 2006, where it received generally positive reviews, including from Roger Ebert, Todd McCarthy and Variety, and Rolling Stone's Peter Travers, among others. And the film was modestly profitable. It was made for about half a million dollars and reportedly grossed a little over $2 million in the U.S. So by no means a massive hit, but the kind of investment and return on investment that the indie film business and specialty distribution is based on. And of course, most importantly, it helped to launch Ryan Johnson's career as a writer and director. But beyond the initial release, it also sent the film out into the wider world where it has become something of a minor cult classic. And then for all of you noir heads out there, the one review, the one opinion that you're most curious about is what does the czar of noir, Eddie Muller, think of the film? Well, back in 2009, in an interview with the Washington City paper, Eddie Muller said of the film, I was prepared to hate it, but actually found it smart and amusing. There you go. Take it from Eddie, a man of good taste, smart and amusing. Um, And earlier in the pod, I I talked about a handful of the quirky and or dark teen feature films, the mashups that led to Brick, uh, giving the heavy adult subject matter to teenage characters. But for the most part, this has moved over to TV. And even around the time of Brick, it was already going there. The teen detective show Veronica Mars, starring Kristen Bell as the titular private investigator, ran for three seasons from 2004 to 2006 and came back in 2014 as a feature film and had a final season for Hulu in 2019. The pop cultural phenomenon that was The O.C. also premiered in 2004. The drama dealt with issues of class and materialism with fast-talking teens in the uber-rich Newport Beach. The OC ran until 2007, and Gossip Girl took the torch where it left off that same year, starring Blake Lively, Leighton Meester, Penn Badgley, Ed Westwick, and Kristen Bell comes back again here as the narrator. Based on a popular series of novels, Gossip Girl tackled a lot of the same issues as the OC, but this time... In the Upper East Side. And if we jump to today, there seem to be endless series that fit this overall mold of teens and adult situations, um, starting with the mega hit Stranger Things as a direct 80s nostalgia trip that takes the sci-fi genre to the world of preteens. Uh, that one started in 2016 and is ongoing with three seasons so far. Speaking of properties rooted in nostalgia, Uh, Riverdale makes a teen drama out of the characters from the Archie comics. And then there's the one that tackles teens today in HBO's Euphoria with frank depictions of sex, drugs, love, and trauma among a group of Gen Z high schoolers. And there are way, way more series I could list off and, and discuss here. But really, it seems to be that the gritty teen feature film is far behind us. It's in, in the rear view. But, but who knows? Maybe there's a new crop of filmmakers just waiting to, to create the, the latest neo-noir or 
uh, other such genre mashed up film for teens, for Gen Z, uh, inspired by Ryan Johnson's debut feature. So when I went back to watch, rewatch this film for the podcast this week, basically 15 years after the first time I saw it, I was a bit concerned about how it would hold up and that maybe something I thought was really cool and clever 15 years ago wouldn't be so much now. Uh, but I have to say that for me, even though I think I was probably seeing kind of the seams of the film's whole film noir in a high school conceit far more this time around, the film really does hold up 15 years later. It's bold, it's visually striking, uh, it still works as a really involving mystery movie and it still kind of stands alone both within the near noir genre and the high school genre. And I also think watching it now with a knowledge of where Ryan Johnson's career went afterwards and of the types of films he's made since, uh, that you can't help but see Brick as the ultimate calling card movie of a young, talented director. It's ambitious, it's risky. You can see how consciously and carefully and deliberately it was put together, uh, which is what I mean by seeing the scenes a bit more this time around. And I don't mean that as a criticism, I just think it demonstrates that Ryan Johnson already had in his debut feature a very unique vision as a filmmaker and the confidence to execute his ideas, even if maybe on paper they sound like they wouldn't work at all. And of course, this confidence in playing around with genre and subverting audience expectations is something that's carried through and only amplified uh, in all of uh, Johnson's work since Brick. Uh, Brick is kind of the ultimate indie movie dream story, shot on a shoestring budget, gets into Sundance, gets a distribution deal, and before you know it, you're directing a Star Wars film. So the success of Brick got Johnson a deal to make his next film, uh, The Brothers Bloom, in 2008 with Rachel Weisz, Adrian Brody, and Mark Ruffalo. And just as Brick was a take on film noir, The Brothers Bloom plays with the con man genre uh, in a comedy vein uh, with Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon as the primary inspiration in this case. Uh, his next project was 2012's Looper, again, starring the great Joseph Gordon-Levitt, this time opposite Bruce Willis as an older version of himself. And this one allowed Johnson to play with the sci-fi and time travel genres. And Looper was a massive critical and commercial success. And it put Johnson on a path to his next project, directing an episode of a small obscure space opera called Star Wars with 2017's Star Wars The Last Jedi. And again, Johnson used this opportunity to play with the genre and to play with audience expectations, uh, in particular with audience expectations about the Star Wars universe, uh, which can be a very risky thing to do. And yes, Johnson did upset some diehard Star Wars fans with his take on the material and with what they maybe saw as his dismissal of some of the th fan theories about what should or would happen in this particular episode. But nevertheless, it was a massive box office and critical success. Success. And then Johnson's most recent film, uh, 2019's Knives Out, was another smash hit. Uh, this time Johnson took on the mystery whodunit genre uh, with an all-star cast, inc including Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, Licky Stanfield, Christopher Plummer, there's even more. And then, as I mentioned earlier, just a few weeks ago, it was reported that Netflix had agreed to pay over $450 million for the rights to two Knives Out sequels, 
uh, both to be written and directed by Johnson. So in the span of 15 years, he's gone from scraping together $450,000 for a brick to getting a $450 million payout from Netflix. I mean, I settled for $450 myself, but you have to admit it's pretty impressive. And I'll also mention that Johnson has really stuck with many of the key cast and crew on Brick throughout his career. Uh, in addition to working with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Noah Sagan, as Ben mentioned, on all four of his subsequent features, um, they do have small roles and cameos, even in the films they don't star up in. Yes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in Star Wars The Last Jedi. Joe also worked with the same cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, uh, who was key in actually getting Rick off the ground uh, and helping to get it funded. And he's been on board for all of Johnson's projects since. So that unique visual style of Brick paid dividends for him too. So yeah, Ryan Johnson has really made a career out of this uh, independent film, um, clearly gone way beyond what that uh, success was. But that small success was recognized by one of the big film podcasts out there early on in their run with the Golden Brick, which is an award that Film Spotting gives out every year to independent up and coming films and filmmakers um, that they've been doing since around the time of, of this movie, actually. The, their show started in 2005. And of course, as we mentioned, this film came out in 2006, 15 years ago. Uh, the Brick is just about as old as that and has gone to many great deserving filmmakers and that just speaks to the film's legacy and importance, uh, even in the podcast scape. So uh, it's stretched far and wide. And hopefully, if you haven't already seen the film or if you want to revisit it, uh, listeners, I highly encourage everyone to check out uh, Brick celebrating 15th anniversary uh, this, this past week. Okay, so that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope that you see something that you love this week. Thanks, everyone. We will see you back again next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Silver Streams, and we hope you join us for the next one. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at afi.com silver. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at AFI Silver Theater and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And music for this episode is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Find more of their work on their website, sessions.blue. Down by